Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. I'd like to welcome you back to season three of Criminology. This is episode one. I know we've been away for a while, but we're excited, Morph, right, to be back. And we're taking a deep dive into a case that almost everyone knows about. This is one of the most notorious serial killers in true crime history. Yeah, so I'm excited to cover this case, Mike. It's one that I've always been interested in. And we take a big dive into it, and I think we're going to uncover some facts that not everybody knows about. Now, season three is going to be a short one compared to season two. Obviously, we covered the Golden State Killer, and that took 15 episodes to tell that story. And thankfully, it ended with an arrest. And hopefully that leads to a court date one day with the accused suspect, Joseph D'Angelo. And one thing we want to let you know right up front is that after season three ends, Morph said it, you know, probably be about four episodes. We're going to pick it up pretty quickly. We're not going to take the same type of break that we normally do. And we're going to come back at you with some episodes that are a little bit of a, a change of pace for us. I think people are really going to enjoy season four. It's going to be a little bit of a departure, but it's something that I'm looking forward to, Mike. But I wanted to throw that out there, not to get ahead of ourselves. You know, for this season, season three, like I said, we want to go into a lot of detail, which is something we like to do, about a serial killer who is infamous in true crime history. And even though a lot of people know the story about this killer, we think that there's a lot more to discuss about him. And we're talking about Ted Bundy. You know, this is a guy that admitted to killing at least 36 women, but some experts place that number much higher, maybe even close to 100. But it's unlikely that we'll ever know exactly how many people lost their lives to this monster. But we're going to go into detail into Bundy's life and his crimes this is a guy that transformed from a seemingly normal young man with a very bright future into one of America's most prolific serial killers. You know, he used his charm. He used his good looks to lure countless women to their deaths. This season wouldn't be possible without the writing and research of our friend E.J. Hammond. E.J. is a North Carolina native, and she's always been fascinated with serial crime and the psychology behind it. She currently publishes a controversial blog about Ted Bundy called Confessions of a Bundy File. She's also written articles on serial murder published on Bizarropedia and Crime Viral. And we got a chance to meet EJ in person at CrimeCon. She's amazing. We started talking about Bundy. And the next thing you know, Morph, she's helping us out with this season. But before we get into the case, we have to catch up and thank our Patreon supporters. You know, they stuck with us over the break. 
that really helps us out in preparing for the next season. It's the generous support like that that allows us to keep this podcast going. So I want to give shout outs to Madison Paul, Karen Normand, Courtney Jones, Paul Tompkins, Skella Borealis, Jennifer Bardwell, Emily Sesso, Yvonne Byrne, Emily Austin, Aubrey Gideon, Carl Causey jumped out at our highest level, Sheila Gillette, Wendy Sanders, Jennifer Young, Andre Davis Johnson, Cheryl Hankey, Aaron Watson, Leslie Woodruff, Claire Cantwell, Deborah Lyons, Sherry Scheip, Don Parker, Steve Miller, Andre Gall, Melissa Vigil jumped out at our highest level, Justine Kennedy, Cassie Reem Kent, Gina Pantano, Courtney Shows Holshue jumped out at our highest level, and then Janice Leiberts. And obviously more if we have a lot of names there, we have a lot of catching up to do. So I just want to let everybody know if you didn't hear your name, it's definitely coming over this season. And that is awesome. And I think that shows just the just how supportive and generous our listeners and fans are. So we can't thank you enough. And if you'd like to help support the show, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash criminology. All right, Morph, let's dive right into this episode. We're starting out on a February morning in 1978. It's about one o'clock a.m. Pensacola officer David Lee stopped a suspicious VW Beetle near the Alabama-Florida border. After he ran the plates on the car, Lee determined that the vehicle had been stolen. He turned on his blue lights to stop the car, but the driver took off. Officer Lee stayed close behind, and eventually the stolen vehicle came to a stop on the side of the road. The officer asked the weary young man in the driver's seat to step out of the car several times. When the driver finally opened the passenger door and stood, Officer Lee informed him he was being arrested. But as he got one cuff around the suspect's left arm, the suspect kicked his legs out from under him and took off. Lee unholstered his gun, fired it twice in warning before he gave chase. He was able to tackle the man, and each of them fought desperately, trying to gain control of the gun. Eventually, Officer Lee was able to subdue the suspect and successfully handcuff him. On the drive to the station, the man simply told him, I wish you had killed me. This was the final arrest of a violent, cruel man who eventually confessed to brutally murdering more than 30 women. It would become clear that he had no intention of stopping on his own anytime soon. And of course, the man that we're talking about was Theodore Robert Bundy. To really get into Ted Bundy's mind and crimes, we need to start at the very beginning of Ted's life. Founded in 1890 as a home for unmarried pregnant women, the Lund Family Center in Burlington, Vermont, is still a vital resource for struggling families and society's most vulnerable residents. During the ensuing decades, the Lund Home, originally known as Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers, was a necessary shelter for young women who needed to give birth quietly without losing their social standing. That's the environment into which Theodore Robert Cowell was born on November 24, 1946. At seven pounds, nine ounces, 
He was a healthy baby whose birth featured no complications. His mother, Louise, was just a teenager when he was born, and his father's identity is still unknown. However, theories on Ted's paternity range from a sailor on leave to a mysterious Jack Worthington his mother knew, and even to his own grandfather, Samuel Cal. But the name that was listed on Ted's birth certificate was Lloyd Marshall. Crime author and Ted's personal friend, Ann Rule, believed that Ted's grandfather was actually his father, partially because his mother never had a boyfriend. And as a young woman living in a dysfunctional household, with a tyrant as its patriarch, there could have been sexual abuse, among other things. There was most certainly mental and physical abuse. After giving birth to her son, Louise returned home to Philadelphia, and little Ted was raised by nurses and other caregivers at the Lund home. Ted spent the first three months of his life alone in the maternity home, over 400 miles from his mother. It has been suggested by extended members of his family that his mother never intended to go back for him. Instead, she was going to leave him to be put up for adoption. However, her family insisted that she bring him back to Pennsylvania. It's likely that the lack of an immediate bond early on with his mother affected Ted's ability to bond with anyone as he moved forward in life. He even told one of his court psychologists that he was fascinated with murder very, very early. Ted's mother had been one of the brightest in her high school class. She held an honest job at an insurance company. Becoming an unwed mother would have been devastating. She was even the president of her youth group at the local Methodist church right up until her pregnancy was discovered. It was then that she was asked to leave her post, and that must have been humiliating. So it stands to reason that, at times, Louise felt ambivalent towards her child. Ted was born at a pivotal time in her youth, and this was in an era where she was shamed for unwed sexual activity. So he was a constant reminder of her status in the community. Her sister, Julia, said that Louise was temperamental and secretive, just like their father. Louise tended to shrug off the abuse in the family as a way of coping. Friends and neighbors alike agreed that Ted was a handsome child with dark blue eyes and curly brown hair. To avoid shame, Ted's grandparents took on the outward role of father and mother in the boy's life, telling friends and family they adopted him. However, almost everyone knew that Ted was their eldest daughter's son. Still living in her parents' home after high school, Louise took on the role of Ted's sister, and she did her best to help care for her son, including taking him to the local church and making sure he was in bed on time. She tried to bond with him, but there's always some distance between them. And that was most certainly because of his mother's discomfort with how he came into the world. Instead, Ted clung to his grandfather and revered him, despite the older man's disturbing behavior towards the rest of his family. Life at home with his grandfather, Sam, from the time he was born until he was four years old, was no picnic for young Ted. Sam Cow was a terrifying man with an abusive personality. He was feared both within his home and throughout his Pennsylvania neighborhood. There were stories of Sam swinging stray cats by their tails, kicking neighborhood dogs, and brutally tormenting his family. He had three daughters. The youngest, Julia, referred to him as a tyrant. 
and his own sister Virginia called him crazy. He once knocked Julia down the stairs for not getting out of bed on time. Sam was often found shouting at no one in particular, leading some people to wonder if he was mentally ill. He bullied his wife, Eleanor, to the point of depression, and she became a recluse. Eleanor Cow even went through electric shock treatment, which was a common procedure at that time, in an attempt to curb her depression. There are no records to indicate whether the therapy alleviated any of her depression, but what is known is that she did not have much of an influence in her grandson's life. Something else to consider is the damage caused to Ted when witnessing the violence in his grandparents' home. It taught him to disrespect women, and it also helps explain some of his early disturbing behavior. According to the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, children as young as preschoolers can show violent behavior. These outbursts can include explosive temper tantrums, physical aggression, fighting, threats, or even attempts to hurt others. Often, these children are simply repeating what they see around them. Bundy later confirmed that his grandfather stashed violent pornography in their greenhouse, indicating he must have found it at one point. Prior to his Florida trials, Ted was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, antisocial disorder, and narcissistic personality disorder. It's possible Bundy was prone to some of these disorders genetically through his maternal grandparents. One of the reasons for Louise's hesitation to bring Ted back to Philadelphia was that she didn't want to return her child to this household of violence. She had been on the receiving end of her father's violent temper and couldn't imagine a baby being put into that situation. And if Ted had resulted from a sexual assault by her own father, Louise would not have wanted to be reminded of that trauma. But Ted never had a bad thing to say about his grandfather. Like many serial killers, he must have compartmentalized the violence he witnessed at Sam's house, and he chose to remember only the good times. Later, when Ted was examined by a psychiatrist for his appeals, the doctor noted that Bundy lacked any core experience of care and nurturance or early emotional sustenance. When Ted was only three years old, his Aunt Julia woke up from a nap surrounded by kitchen knives and other sharp objects. In fact, her nephew Ted had been concealing them under her covers so she wouldn't notice them. She sat up, shocked, and stared directly into the deep blue eyes of the giggling child. Julia admitted that it gave her chills as she relayed the story many years later. Ted's violent tendencies were already beginning to show. Julia told Louise about the incident, but apparently she dismissed it. However, something in that house must have scared Louise into moving out. When Ted was five years old, Louise moved them away from her parents all the way across the country to Tacoma, Washington, where she lived for the rest of her life. Louise stayed with her cousin in Tacoma and legally changed their last names to Nelson. So by the age of five, Ted already had his name changed, a new identity, and he had been relocated far away from the grandfather that he adored. Ted's great uncle, Jack Cowell, became a mentor to him when he arrived in Washington State, 
Jack was a neighborhood piano teacher who taught at the University of Puget Sound. To Ted, he seemed affluent. He had enough money to send his children to private schools. Bundy looked up to him and wanted to emulate his lifestyle. He sometimes dreamed of being Jack's child and growing up on the classy side of town. But one of the first things that Ted noticed about Tacoma, Washington was its smell. It had a distinctive smell that came from the paper mills outside of town, locally known as the Tacoma Aroma. It was one reason that Ted didn't embrace his new location. Not long after arriving in Tacoma, Louise met Johnny Culpepper Bundy at a church social event. Johnny was a cook at the local military hospital, and within months, Louise and Johnny were married. And Johnny was a short guy. He only stood about five feet tall. Johnny Bundy adopted Ted, giving him his third and final last name. But the two of them had a complicated relationship. Johnny tried to relate to Ted, and he accepted that he was part of a package deal once he married Louise. But his attempts to connect with Ted failed. By the time Ted was in high school, he would distance himself from his father, proudly telling his peers that Johnny wasn't his real dad. Johnny was a middle-class worker who couldn't possibly provide the lavish lifestyle Ted sought. Ted was never able to see past the fact that his adopted father lacked the motivation to obtain the finer things in life. He would come to resent what he viewed as Johnny's lack of ambition. During his parents' marriage, they would go on to have four children. Their names were Linda, Glenn, Sandra, and Richard. And despite wanting nothing to do with his father, Ted got along well enough with his brothers and sisters. And his relationship with his mother was not much better. You know, Bundy would later say that he never had a close connection with his mother. He called her intelligent, but also said that she wasn't able to have a deep conversation wasn't able to address anything personal with him. She would help him with his homework. But Ted would say that his mother never really said anything important, never opened up to him. His mom would ask him about the weather or things that really didn't matter instead of asking him about his life. And growing up, Ted was highly sensitive to how he was perceived. He felt that his parents were a disappointment, and he thought that riding around in the family Nash Rambler was an embarrassment. Ted thought that his mother married beneath herself, and he really never fully understood that now, as a single mother in the 1950s, her choices for a stable, healthy marriage were limited. He never cut his mother any slack. Ted felt as if from the very beginning, his mother had betrayed him and he never forgot it. He would later say that as a kid growing up, he dreamed that his cowboy hero, Roy Rogers, would adopt him. And this is how much he wanted to get out of this family, get away from his mom and his new father. The fact that Ted was illegitimate became an especially big deal when he hit his teenagers. He acted out at times, partially because he had to learn about his real father on his own. Bundy told a girlfriend named Liz that he was a bastard and broke down in front of her. 
Ted was horrified because this didn't fit his dream of validation and perfection. He wanted to be the ideal man and felt the world owed him his legitimacy. The confusion brought about by believing his mother was actually his sister as a child was a long-term pain that Ted was never able to alleviate. In 1961, an eight-year-old girl named Anne Marie Burr was abducted from her home in Tacoma, Washington. Investigators found a faint footprint outside her window, and they believed that on the night of August 31st, 1961, her abductor entered her home through an unlocked window and grabbed her. The front door was left ajar and is believed to be the exit point. At the time, Ted Bundy was 14 years old and lived just a few blocks away. Bundy's uncle, Jack Cow, was Anne Marie's piano teacher. So it's pretty certain that Ted would have seen her coming and going to her lessons at Jack's house. He was not suspected at the time of this kidnapping in 1961. Years later, detectives would draw parallels between Ted's time in Tacoma and Anne Marie's abduction. At the time of Anne Marie's abduction, Bundy's interest in peeping behavior had already begun. Now, he would later deny any involvement in her abduction or murder, but shortly before his execution, he would make some comments to the effect of, having sexually abused Anne-Marie and dumping her body. He was never officially linked to her murder. And in fact, her body has never been found. But it does raise the question of his involvement in murder at a very young age. But I think you have to look at the likelihood of a 14-year-old being able to carry out this kidnapping this murder and burying or hiding a body so well that to this day, it's never been found. Ted attended Woodrow Wilson high school in Tacoma and graduated in the class of 1965. Most of his friends there noted he was moderately popular and got along with most people. But a few of them noted he would occasionally have tantrums if he didn't get his way. If he didn't like you, you could expect a cold look from him. In one of his female classmates' yearbooks, he wrote, You dear sweet girl. God darn, you're a dear sweet girl. Gee, you are a dear sweet girl. I'll be darned, a dear sweet girl. Ted Bundy. Perhaps Ted thought he was being funny, or perhaps it was a feeble attempt at wooing the young lady. During this time frame, Ted was a Boy Scout and enjoyed going on camping trips with the local troop. Sandy Holt, one of Ted's neighbors, believes that Ted was sexually molested by her father on a Boy Scout camping trip. Both her father and Ted were found half-dressed in a tent on an overnight trip. They were both reprimanded, and Ted stopped attending scouting events shortly thereafter. Sandy believed this happened because her father had been molesting both her brother and her throughout their childhood. This incident could have fueled even more hatred towards his mother for not protecting him from yet another damaging incident. Ted's friends Doug and Sandy Holt used to spend time with Ted at his house. Ted had begun grabbing female classmates and filling them up in the woods near school. When he tried it with Sandy, Doug almost knocked him out. This information from Sandy Holt was gathered for the Rebecca Morris book, 
Ted and Ann. The definition of a peeping Tom's actions can be described as a disorder that involves achieving sexual arousal by observing an unsuspecting and non-consenting person who is undressing or unclothed and or engaged in sexual activity. This behavior may conclude with masturbation by the voyeur. What's troublesome is that often this behavior can be fueled by pornography and it can escalate to more dangerous behavior. Bundy admitted to Dr. James Dobson during his final interview that he regularly viewed pornography as a teen. As a young, a young boy, and I mean a boy of uh, 12, 13, certainly, um, that I encountered outside the home again uh, in uh, the local grocery store, the local uh, uh, drugstore, the softcore pornography, what people call softcore. Uh, as young boys do, we explored the, the back roads and sideways and byways of our neighborhood and oftentimes people would dump the garbage and whatever they were cleaning out of their house and from time to time we'd come across uh, pornographic books of a harder nature than uh, more uh, graphic, you might say, more explicit nature than we would encounter, let's say, in your local grocery store. And this also included such things as, let's say, detective magazines and uh, most damaging kinds of pornography, and my, again, I'm talking from personal experience, uh, hard, real personal experience, the most damaging kinds of pornography are those that involve violence and, and sexual violence, because the wedding of those two forces, as, as I am known only too well, brings about behavior that is just, is just uh, too terrible to describe. His Florida attorney, Polly Nelson, stated that he wandered alone all the time going through trash cans to find pornographic magazines. Often young men start peeping, then they decide to break into homes, steal undergarments, all of which can lead to physical attacks on their victims over time. Ted readily admitted that he liked to creep around in the darkness. And from a young age, he started sneaking out of his house at night. He would find young women to watch throughout the neighborhood. He was once caught by a neighbor who discovered him watching a woman with his pants down and the neighbor threw water on him. When asked about this aberrant behavior in his childhood, Bundy said, this is something that a lot of young boys would do without intending any harm. But it's easy to see how it later formed the basis for the so-called entity That part of me that began to visualize and fantasize more violent things. He also described enjoying listening to radio talk shows because when he did this, it made him feel like a voyeur, listening to people's problems undetected. Though Bundy's murders and assaults would go on to be well documented, his thefts have gone relatively unnoticed, but they can tell us something about why he committed the murders. He was arrested twice as a juvenile for stealing, but those charges were later expunged from his record when he turned 18. Despite all of his thefts as an adult, he was never arrested again for the crime. According to Bundy and his ex-fiancee, Liz, he stole anything he wanted, including a Sony TV, an expensive rug, credit cards, and a stereo without a second thought. 
Liz knew that he wasn't making enough money to afford all the things in his possession, and he eventually admitted to her that he stole things occasionally. Bundy was quoted as saying in the book Confessions of a Killer, in those days, I wouldn't go into stores and shoplift. What I went for were things that I couldn't afford, expensive things. When Liz confronted Ted about his thefts, he told her to shut her mouth or he would break her neck. Bundy saw nothing wrong with stealing. He honestly felt that what he wanted, he should just take. He couldn't afford the items, but felt he deserved them anyway. Hard work for pay never occurred to him, and ethics certainly weren't his strong suit. Bundy was so compulsive that he even used stolen credit cards to purchase more than 30 pairs of socks while in Florida. He was so proficient at stealing that he even stole several cars in Colorado and in Florida. He once said, the thought of burglary or anything really criminal never crossed my mind. I felt no remorse whatsoever about taking something like that out of a store. I'd only take what I needed. Ted was so calm, so cool, especially after a few beers, that he would just walk right into a store, pick up an item, and walk right out with it. The only time he was chased out of a store, he was able to throw off employees, then drive off with the stolen merchandise. One of the few hobbies Ted enjoyed was skiing. It seemed like something that the upper-class community would enjoy, so he threw himself into the sport. His middle-class family didn't have money to spend on ski equipment or lift tickets, so as a youth, he stole the equipment, he altered lift tickets that had been previously purchased to suit his needs. And understanding why Bundy stole is crucial to the understanding of his psyche as a whole. The items that Bundy took were merely objects, and he treated them as if they were his to take. This links directly to the women whose lives he stole throughout his murder spree. He couldn't afford to take these women on dates. He couldn't be the man they wanted. So he took them from their homes and they became his possessions. Once they were dead, he used their bodies and cast them aside in places like Taylor Mountain in Washington State, Glenwood Springs, Colorado, Tallahassee and Lake City, Florida, and other parts unknown. Bundy was quoted in the book Confessions of a Killer as saying, the big payoff for me was actually possessing whatever it was I had stolen. It wasn't the act necessarily. Bundy started his college career at the University of Puget Sound before transferring to the University of Washington to study Chinese in 1967. Once there, he met a beautiful co-ed named Stephanie Brooks. She was from a wealthy family in Northern California, and she was everything Ted wanted in a potential spouse. She had rich, long, dark hair, and she was initially impressed with the persona Bundy portrayed. Throughout 1967 and 1968, the two dated regularly until Ted dropped out of school and took a series of minimum wage jobs. He volunteered with the Nelson Rockefeller presidential campaign and became a party delegate for the 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami. It became increasingly obvious to Stephanie that Ted wasn't serious about his future and wasn't on a viable career path. She became distant and eventually broke things off. Ted was devastated. He was ill-prepared for rejection, 
and didn't take the breakup well. Since he no longer had anything keeping him in Washington State, he visited relatives in Philadelphia and attended a semester at Temple University in 1969. This is a time period when he is possibly linked to a pair of women murdered in Ocean City, New Jersey. Forensic psychologist Dr. Arthur Norman interviewed Bundy in 1986 and said that Bundy told him he murdered two women in Ocean City, New Jersey during this trip. He told the doctor that he picked up a couple of young girls and that it was the first time he had ever done it. In 1969, two 19-year-old women were indeed found murdered in Ocean City, New Jersey during Memorial Day weekend. Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry were found stabbed to death along the northbound lanes of the Garden State Parkway near the Summers Point Ocean City exit number 29. However, police have been unable to link him directly to any evidence found on the scene and Bundy later denied having committed these murders. Ted re-enrolled at the University of Washington in 1970, where he eventually graduated with a degree in psychology in 1972. Though broken up and seeing other people, Stephanie and Ted had been in loose contact by telephone through the years. When Bundy visited California in 1973 on Republican Party business, they rekindled their romance. He appeared to be a changed man, working towards a career in law, and possessing a strong presence in politics. Stephanie was impressed, and her opinion about Ted's level of maturity had changed. She saw the 1973 version of Ted as a viable marriage candidate. The two visited each other back and forth, despite Ted's ongoing relationship with another woman in Washington, and with him seeing other various women on the side. Stephanie and Ted discussed marriage, and he began introducing her as his fiancé. She had no idea how things would abruptly change by the new year. In January 1974, Ted stopped communicating with Stephanie altogether. It took her a month to reach him, and when she finally spoke with him, she asked him if he still planned to marry her. She said he got very quiet, then denied having any knowledge of their relationship or their plans for marriage. She hung up the phone, hurt, and dejected. She later determined that he planned the entire whirlwind romance as a way to punish her for breaking up with him in 1968. He admitted that his sole intent in seeing Stephanie again was to prove to himself that he could have married her. By then, his killing spree had already begun in earnest. So we fast forwarded a little bit there to talk about Ted and Stephanie reuniting and then breaking up in 1974. But we have to go back to 1969. After Ted and Stephanie end things for the first time, this is when Bundy met Liz Klepfer. It's 1969. He's in his early 20s and admittedly, he has no idea how relationships work. Liz was a divorced single mother of a six-year-old daughter from Ogden, Utah. She worked at the University of Washington. Ted got along with her daughter. The little girl liked him. And in fact, wanted him at some point to become her stepfather. Ted had a stormy six-year relationship with Liz, who was only vaguely aware of his relationships with other women throughout those years. One of which we already talked about, that's the reconnection with Stephanie. 
When she did find out about these relationships, she lashed out at Ted and he either engaged in an angry outburst or he lied to her. Now, Liz was recently divorced and it's most likely that Bundy took advantage of any insecurities she had around the divorce, being alone, being a single parent. He promised her marriage on more than one occasion, but he always seemed to wiggle out of any concrete plans. At one point, Ted picked up a marriage license, then later, in a rage, tore it up right in front of her face. In fact, Ted could be downright scary when he was around Liz. And Liz would later write a book. She published it under the name Liz Kendall, but she mentions in the book a time when Ted threw her off a boat while they were on the river. She was terrified. She was screaming for help. And Bundy eventually pulled her out of the water reluctantly. Now, Ted later claimed that he was joking around, but something in his demeanor told Liz that he wasn't. He was dead serious. Another thing that Ted liked to do was jump out at her from behind doors. And it was almost as if he reveled in scaring her, in seeing her reaction. He preferred engaging in violent sex with Liz. But when Bundy saw that Liz didn't like this, he stopped. But despite all of these things, Liz couldn't find the strength to leave him. During most of the relationship, Ted was constantly away from the apartment. And Liz only saw or heard from him sporadically. This is most likely because Bundy was killing and dating other women during this time. Ted didn't seem to be able to marry her, but he also couldn't let her go. It was as if she was his possession, but one he didn't see as an ideal wife. Liz wasn't enough like Stephanie for Ted to consider marrying. She was kind and generous, but not sophisticated or wealthy. Ted saw himself in his fantasy world as a strong husband and father. He had worked for the Republican Party and looked every bit like the successful businessman. Through Ted's hobby as a thief, he managed to obtain some of the finer things in life. It was one way of completing the facade of the charming, high-society personality he wanted to project. However, Liz stayed with Ted for a long time, even after his dark side would come to light, and well into his 1976 trial for kidnapping Carol DeRanche. And it was also after Liz herself had turned Ted into authorities in Washington and Utah as a suspect in murders in both states. One of the women in Ted's social circle was future crime author Anne Rule. While volunteering at a suicide crisis hotline in 1971, Bundy was introduced to Anne. At that time, she was a middle-aged former police officer. Her brother had committed suicide, and she wanted to help others going through depression by volunteering once a week. She was charmed by the 24-year-old young man she was regularly paired with for the night shift. She enjoyed the easy conversations that the two of them had. Rule thought that Ted was intelligent and fun to be around. Though they weren't peers, being over a decade apart in age, she was very fond of him. Ted often walked her to her car in the early hours of the morning. He was concerned for her safety and told her to be careful because there were dangerous criminals walking the city at night. Years later, Anne Rule was baffled by the true identity of the man 
with whom she spent time alone in the small room where they saved lives together each week. She later admitted that she never saw anything disturbing in his behavior while they worked together, and he seemed to be genuine when working with people on the phone. She had just begun trying her hand at crime writing, and she had several conversations with Ted about criminal behavior and psychology. She later realized that while she was reporting on the mysterious Ted killer in the Seattle area, she was unknowingly sitting right next to him. She once described him as a sadistic sociopath who took pleasure from another human's pain and the control he had over his victims to the point of death, and even after. And it's almost unbelievable that Ted Bundy was manning a suicide hotline, given all of the heinous acts that he was known to have committed. Whether Ted really cared about any of the women in his life is something we'll never truly know. But based on what we know of psychopaths, they don't experience love the way we do. They aren't able to feel deep feelings of love, which explains why they can kill so easily. It's true that Ted Bundy was both drawn to and repelled by women. Clearly, his relationship with his mother and other female relatives influenced his preferred victim type. Ted was a murder addict, and it's safe to say the only reason he didn't kill the women around him was so he wouldn't be caught. He admitted to Liz that he had tried to kill her and her daughter at one point, but was able to stop himself. Ted Bundy was a dangerous man who would have eventually killed any woman who got in his way if he hadn't been stopped. And Morph, I think we have to examine Ted Bundy's script or his MO because he used some very specific tactics. And this is where the gruesome details of what Ted did come to light. And obviously over the next few episodes, we're going to get into the specifics of the murders. But Ted enjoyed luring his victims to him by feigning a broken arm or leg, then knocking them unconscious with a crowbar. The allure of this method was to get the potential prey into an area where Bundy knew he would be less likely to be caught. Most of the time, he asked a young woman to carry his books to his car for him. And on more than one occasion, a young woman took off before he could knock her out. But there's no doubt that he was able to pull this off probably more often than not with devastating effect. And it was something that also required a degree of intelligence to pull off. Once Bundy had the woman on the ground after using the crowbar, he would put her on the floorboard where the passenger seat would be. And this was one of the reasons that Bundy liked Volkswagen bugs. It was because he could remove the passenger seat and nobody would be able to see his victims from outside the car, helping to ensure that he wouldn't be pulled over by police. It was after driving out to a quiet spot, one of which was Teller Mountain in King County, Ted would rape the victim, regardless of whether she was merely unconscious or dead. If she was still alive when he finished, Bundy would strangle her to death. He often spent time with the lifeless bodies of his victims for several hours, either in the outdoors or in his apartment. Bundy would return to some outdoor bodies several times 
to perform necrophilia on them until he was no longer able to due to animal activity and decomposition. He remarked to an investigator that he enjoyed the colors of the skin as it changed during the days after death, especially in the body's nail beds. Rumor has it that Bundy would sometimes decapitate women and take their heads with him to his home. And you can only imagine what he did with them. Four heads of his Washington victims were found grouped together in Taylor Mountain, nowhere near their bodies. Bundy was suspected of decapitating at least 12 of his victims and burying the bodies, but holding onto the heads for sexual reasons. During Bundy's killing spree, two FBI profilers sought a new way to describe this particular type of criminal. Up until that time, someone who killed more than one person over a period of time was called a mass murderer. Both Robert Ressler and John Douglas from the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit chose a more narrow definition in an effort to simplify the types of killers who matched Bundy's traits. And most research gives credit to Robert Ressler for coining the term serial killer. A serial killer is defined as a person who murders three or more people over a period of time of usually more than 30 days with a cooling off period between each murder. And a lot of times you'll see in there that the motivation for the killings are largely based on psychological gratification. But different authorities apply different criteria when using the serial killer designation. Most of them set the threshold at three, but others extend it to four, and some even use it for as few as two murders. The FBI defines serial killing as a series of two or more murders committed as separate events, usually but not always by one offender acting alone. Although psychological gratification is the usual motive for serial killing, and even more specifically, most serial killings involve some type of sexual contact with the victim, the FBI states that the motives of serial killers can include anger, thrill-seeking, financial gain, and attention-seeking. A serial killer is neither a mass murderer nor a spree killer. From 1974 to 1978, Ted Bundy would meet the criteria of a serial killer, and not just a serial killer, but a gruesome and depraved one at that. Ted's first known victim, Karen Sparks, survived. On January 4, 1974, Karen was bludgeoned with a metal rod from her own bed frame in her basement apartment. She was sexually assaulted by the same metal rod, or possibly a speculum, based on the extensive injuries found on her sexual organs. She was in a coma for 10 days and eventually left with permanent physical and mental disabilities. This crime seems similar to Ted's first known murder the very next month of a University of Washington student. In the early morning hours of February 1st, 1974, college student Linda Healy was abducted from her basement apartment in Seattle, Washington. Ted Bundy broke in, bludgeoned the young woman while she slept, then quietly dressed her. Her bloodied nightgown was found hanging in her closet, and her bed had been made. Linda's roommates discovered her missing the next morning, when her alarm clock wouldn't stop going off. Bundy later admitted that he had been watching the house for a while. One day, he found the front door unlocked, 
and returned to explore the house when all five roommates were asleep. Once he had Linda in his vehicle, he bound and gagged her and covered her with a blanket. Then he drove her to a secluded area where her body was found in March 1975 on Taylor Mountain outside of Seattle. It was determined that she had been beaten to death. Bundy later alluded to sexually assaulting the unconscious woman and spending several hours with her before leaving her body on the mountain. He returned to it several times to engage in further sexual acts and to spend time with Linda's body until he was no longer able to commit necrophilia due to decomposition. Bundy later admitted that he experienced levels of high anxiety between his killings. He was always thinking about and wondering if he would be tied to each murder. He was hyper alert, ensuring that he didn't leave any evidence behind. In fact, Bundy was so fastidious and precise in his cleaning that one jurisdiction later on would not find any of his fingerprints in a boarding house where he was living. And apparently he would tell himself that he wouldn't commit any more killings because he wanted to avoid the danger of arrest. But the pressure would build. And it would continue to build to the point where he felt compelled to hunt for another victim. Eventually, over time, his thought process changed from don't ever do that again to just make sure you don't get caught. He told one interviewer that he didn't feel any guilt about the crimes, that he merely wanted to avoid detection. And he took steps to make sure that he wasn't caught. The gruesome murder of Linda Healy was just the beginning in a long line of horrific and perverted crimes committed by Ted Bundy. And, and this is, I guess, where it counts. To me, that means that we go over things in great detail, but not just the incident itself. Ultimately, whether it's to you or to somebody else, because basically it all began in Washington State. That is, that's where I was living. That's where I grew up as a kid. And that's where I grew up as a young man, and, and those kinds of uh, images, impulses, and behaviors which ultimately led to the violent behavior, you know, occurred, if you will, in Washington State. That the kind of uh, broad understanding that I'm looking for is uh, going to come, you know, uh, during those years I lived in Washington State. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I guess from your standpoint, it was Washington, basically Washington State, where those first crimes, incidences, murders that took place. Well, let's just do one here. I mean, let's start. Obviously, we got to start somewhere. And I think it might, we might, it's a long shot, it's a pretty long shot, that you might be able to get something out of it. At least some of that so-called tangible uh, evidence that might be of some value not only to you but to others and maybe a bit of information even if you don't find anything else that might be of some value to families okay so we'll do i understand that uh, the Issaquah site which i could describe to you uh, would describe to you if you want there were three uh, remains of three individuals found two identified one not because of the, the uh, so few 
the kinds of remains that were found were so few and unidentifiable. Okay. What do you want? Where the description of the site first? How to get there? I mean, you just don't you just don't make this up. Right? Maybe half a mile, quarter of a mile down this uh, little side road. If you turn, if you kept on flying all the way down, oh well, Lord knows what what the little creatures up there did, what the animals would have done. But I think. Well, let's uh, let me start with one. Let me start this one. Um, the unidentified remains. This is where I'm a little bit, uh, the presence of the officers down here is a little bit unnerving. Uh, some of it, some of this stuff I don't mind talking about because they wouldn't know from Adam, but I, but names, I will, I can write it down or I can whisper it to you or whatever. I just don't want the police getting any kind of names at this point. Well, can you hear that? I can hear it, yeah. Okay. I just wrote, I just said that the Hawkins girls had severed and taken up the road about uh, 25 to 50 yards and buried in a location about 10 yards west of the road on a rocky hillside. That was a clip of Ted Bundy in his own shocking words. So more, I think this is a good place to stop for episode one. But in the next episode, we're really going to dive in to more of the horrific murders committed by Ted Bundy. If you'd like to join us in our Facebook group to discuss Ted Bundy or the podcast, we have a great group of over 2,500 members, and we're always happy to add more. You can find us on Facebook by searching Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. And we also have a Criminology Podcast homepage you can find by searching. We're also on Twitter with the handle at CriminologyPod. And so many of you have taken the time to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And that's amazing. If you haven't done that and you love the show, we'd love for you to go out, give us a five-star rating. It really helps the show continue to grow and reach more people. And many of you may be finding us for the first time. So we want to make sure that you know that both Morph and I have other true crime podcasts. I host two, True Crime All the Time and True Crime All the Time Unsolved. And I also host The Murder in My Family and Crime Sphere. So make sure you check those out. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the first episode of season three. Make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss episode two next week. We'll talk to you then. Take care, everybody.